Well, we're going to transition now. You can get out your Bibles. Uh, we love to study God's Word together. So uh, let's open up our Bibles and go to the book of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with us on the Bible app or you'll notice our ushers are coming around. They would love to give you a copy. We love to hear from God. We are going to finish up Mark chapter 7 uh, today and we are learning who Jesus is and what it means to be a disciple. I got to tell you, being a disciple is an adventure, isn't it? And it's an exciting adventure. But uh, adventures are often fraught with uh, pain and trials and difficulties. And so um, following Jesus does not exempt us from any of that. Sometimes life doesn't go uh, the way we want. And sometimes we are hurting. And when you are suffering, when, you, um, when you're in need, I know what you do. Uh, you pray. And you ask God to help, right? That's what you do. But how we ask is just as, if not more important as what we ask. Would you agree? Uh, we're learning this lesson uh, sometimes the hard way in my house. We have four kids ages nine to one. And so when the, uh, the need for help, when, when the request or announcement uh, is, is made, when they want something, it kind of ranges from demanding all the way to screaming. I need milk to... Like that's, that's kind of what's happening here. And we have a question that we use for all of them. We've been using this for years. As soon as that happens, we ask them, how do you ask? How do you ask? Right? We, we want them to learn how to say, please, may I? Uh, Javen's not there yet. We're, we've been trying to teach him like the sign language. for. Please. He ends up just like beating his chest. Which, you know, he's, he's a boy and he's hangry, so we kind of go with it. How do you ask? How do you ask? How do you approach God and ask for help when you're hurting and when you really need him to step in and intervene and work in your life? How do you ask? Maybe, maybe you're there right now. You're like, man, I need God to step into my life. And I want to be careful how I approach. I want to be careful how I'm talking to him. I don't want to be like a spoiled brat that's pitching a fit. And you're like, I don't, I don't want to do that. How do I do this? Maybe some of you are like, I'm kind of okay right now. I, I don't know, like, everything seems to be fine. I don't know that I need God's help right now. Well, can I just say, if that's you, praise God, you're in a good season. Uh, let's learn this lesson before you need it. Is that okay? It, it, you don't have to wait until you are hurting to learn how to ask. And so in Mark chapter 7, if you want a big idea, here it is this morning. Jesus responds when you ask in humble faith. He can reverse the curse you're under. You believe that? I want to show it to you. Mark chapter 7. I'm here in verse 24. Starting in verse 24, Mark says, And from there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, 
For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Father, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, I love that we get to open up your word. I pray that you would help us understand that we can trust you, that we can ask. We can pray to you. You want us to. You invite us to do this. And that we want to do this with hearts that are in the right place. We want to do this with hearts that are humble and that love you and that believe in faith that you are the one who can answer. So I pray that you would speak to us and convince us of that again, even this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, let me give you uh, three action steps to take when you ask God for help. Okay, here's one. Note this. Get low. Get low. Humility's kind of important on this one. Okay, so, so Jesus, in verse 24, says he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And whenever I see locations, it gets me fired up because that means I get to put up a map and use my little laser pointer, okay? So here's, I just want, I, I want to help you. This is visualizing here where we've been. Okay, so Jesus has been down here by the Sea of Galilee. This is primarily where his ministry has been taking place. Today, he's going to move, he leaves there, and he goes up here to Tyre and up into Sidon. Now, this region up here, if you notice, is not Israel, okay? So Jesus is leaving the Jews, and he's going northwest to where the Gentiles live. Now, why is he doing that? Well, we don't really know why. It might just be that, that he's really kind of tired. He needs to get away and rest. In fact, the text says that he did not want anyone to follow. Think about it. I mean, he's, got, he's been dealing with the crowds. He's had all sorts of confrontations with his enemies. So maybe he really just wants to get away because he's tired. Yet he could not be hidden. Love that. But immediately, a woman who had heard of him, came. So when you're as awesome as Jesus is, and you're doing these incredible miracles, word just gets out. And so here comes this desperate woman who needs help. Our question is, is Jesus going to help her? So how, how many of you have ever uh, had a student loan or ever filled out papers? Yeah, 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 come on, come on. Don't lie. All right, yes. So, so you, when you filled out your student loan, they asked you questions, and then they were trying to determine whether you qualified for help, right? And hopefully you could highlight things that were in your favor, like you know, whether you're in-state or out-of-state or need-based or merit-based or your demographic or your uh, economic status or other particular advantages that would help you. Do you qualify? Should we help you? So here comes this woman asking Jesus for help, but you got to know that in the eyes of the Jewish culture, her case is not so good, okay? In fact, she has a, a number of strikes against her as a candidate to receive help. One is that she's a woman. Now, unfortunately, in her society, uh, that was not an advantage, okay? And, and the text, verse 26, says that she was also a, a, a Gentile. That means she was a Greek. Uh, so she, she's not a Jew. There is a massive cultural difference here. She doesn't think like a Jew. She doesn't talk like a Jew. She doesn't eat like a Jew. She doesn't act like a Jew. She's not. She's got a completely different culture. 
And, and what's worse is that it says that she's a Syrophoenician by birth. That means that she's from the province of Syria, okay? That region of Tyre, that used to be uh, Phoenicia, and, and that's not friendly to Israel. It's a pagan area. And so this woman being from there is unclean in the eyes of the Jews. This is not somebody that you would invite to come worship with you. And what's worse is that it's her daughter who has an unclean spirit. Her daughter, who's also female, also Gentile, meaning also unclean. And if that's not bad enough, she has an unclean spirit. And so, so just based on the, the, the cultural credentials that she has, this woman has no right to be asking Jesus for help. And so I think like maybe if, if, if Mark's audience, the one he was writing this to, were, were Gentile Christians that were living in Rome, they're intensely interested to see how Jesus is going to respond here. Will he Help somebody who's not Jewish. And unfortunately, we kind of understand this, don't we? We feel this. Do you just help the people that are your people? Do you, do you, do you tend to stick with people of the same skin color, the same social status? How do you treat others that are not like you? What does Jesus say? Look at verse 27. He says, uh, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Does that rub anybody the wrong way? I, I mean, he basically just called her a dog. Okay, and I realize that in 21st century America, we love dogs, right? And, and, and we go way out of our way. I'm not trying to, like, offend anybody, okay? I get it. Uh, but some of us spend, like, stupid money on, on things for our dogs, and we get a little, at times, not you, but at times extreme in our uh, obsession for pampering our pets. That's not happening in this culture, okay? So when Jesus calls her a dog, that's not a good thing. Now, now, you would just imagine Twitter would erupt if, if, if somebody caught Jesus on video saying that today, right? I, I mean, it basically kind of sounds uh, like, like a racial slur. You're like, man, I thought Jesus, I, I thought he loved everybody. This, this just doesn't feel right. This feels rude. This feels racist. I mean, dogs in that society roamed the streets and ate from the trash, so this was a derogatory term that the Jews used to refer to the Gentiles. Why? To indicate that they were ceremonially unclean. God is holy. We are not. And the cleanliness laws meant, you know, it's just a reminder for us. We can't just walk right into God's presence. In fact, th this whole like clean versus defiled has become a major theme in, in chapter 7. Last week we saw uh, Jesus was having it out with these Pharisees over the issue of what actually defiles a person, what makes them unclean. Remember, he, they were saying you've got to wash your hands before you eat because if you eat that food and you didn't wash your hands, now you become unclean. And, and so by placing this story right after that encounter, what Jesus is doing, he is juxtaposing those Pharisees who thought they were deserving of God's favor because they were clean with a Gentile woman who knows she's not. 
Jesus is trying to help all of us understand. He wants our hearts. It's not about what's on the outside, what rules you keep or, or, or what food you eat. And it's not about where you're from, what your race is, what your nationality is. So in fact, Jesus is not pushing her away. He's actually drawing her in. Yes, he went first to the Jews, but it was always his plan. It was always his intention to take this gospel to the nations. In fact, he's doing it right here. And she responds the way we all should. I mean, just look at her heart, verse 28. Look, look at her. She's coming. She's on her knees before him. That speaks of her humility. And, and, and notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't get like, Psh, I can't believe you would say this. She doesn't get offended by what Jesus says. Why? Because she understands what the Pharisees, the ones who are supposed to be teaching God's law, do not. So she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs. She gets low. She gets humble. She does not deny that she is undeserving. And notice that she doesn't beg for Jesus to answer her prayer and her request based on any sense of her rights. Do we do this when we approach God? Do, do, do we have this kind of humility where we, we get low? Or is it possible that sometimes we approach God in our prayer demanding that he answer our requests the way we want? And maybe, like, I know, like, you, you wouldn't take a, a tone or, or, or cop an attitude with God, but sometimes it's like my kids, uh, uh, sometimes they just, you know, they'll, they'll just blurt out these indicative statements, like, I'm hungry, and expect that we're just going to immediately jump uh, to do whatever they want, because it, it's not that they're trying to be, uh, you know, rude and offensive, but sometimes they just get careless. And they act as though mom and dad simply exist to satisfy their every whim and demand. Right? Do we do this with the Lord? Do we treat him like that sometimes? Like, basically, God, I just need you to be on standby for me. You're at my beck and call. When I need you, I'll let you know. And I just need you. You're basically, it's kind of like, I'm the master. You're the servant. You're here to serve me. You are here for what I need. Or, do we ask because we assume that we have a right to be happy? That I have a right to have all of my circumstances go just the way I want them. And I know most of us would never like physically throw a tantrum like a two-year-old. But do you kind of pitch a fit when you don't get your way? I went, God, sometimes he doesn't answer. Do you, do you get cranky or do you get irritable when, when you've been praying for something you've been asking and God seems to be saying no not yet how do we approach him do we have that kind of humility well how, how, how do we get humble well, well look at what she does verse 28 look at look at how she responds I just want you to notice this she says yes Lord do you know that she's the first person in the book of Mark to call him that 
Jesus actually called himself Lord a lot of times. He referred to himself as Lord multiple times. In fact, this was actually what Mark had said at the very beginning of the book. This is what we've been trying to prove this whole time. You know this. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he said this is what Mark thinks about Jesus. He says he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's been trying to prove that the entire time. But this is the first time that somebody else explicitly calls him Lord. And it won't happen again until he comes in the triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11 where they say, Hosanna, blessed be the the, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. She is acknowledging that he is sovereign, she is not, and she humbles herself and she bows before him. Is this not how Jesus taught us to pray? Right? We know this in the Lord's Prayer. We, we pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do you know that when you get your theology right, you'll get low? Don't make yourself the center of attention when you pray. He is God. I am not. He needs to be exalted, not me. I am a sinner. I know what I do deserve and what I don't deserve. And so I know that when I ask, when I ask God for anything, I am completely dependent on his mercy and his grace. Notice, again, she's not arguing with Jesus based on her rights. You and I do not approach God because we have a right. We can approach God because he has made us right before him by what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's why we get to call him our father. Because he's adopted us as sons. That's grace. That's mercy. And then he invites us to come talk to him. Come ask. So do you get low? Do you you have that kind of humility before him? It it actually leads to the second action step when you ask God for help. Note this. Be persistent. Be persistent. I love this. We're not surprised that she's being persistent, are we? Because she's a parent. That's what you do. We hate seeing our kids suffer with a cold. So I, I can't imagine what it must have been like for her to watch her little girl suffering under the torture physically and spiritually and emotionally under the oppression of a demon. And so if you've ever made a trip to the pharmacy at 2 in the morning to help your kid, then you can just kind of appreciate that she's going to do whatever it takes because she's a mom. She's not going to stop. And so verse 28, she says, yes, Lord, yet, yet, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Notice she's not disagreeing with Jesus. She's not picking a fight. She's not arguing with him she knows her place and so she's humble she gets low but she also knows her need and she knows the one who can meet it and so she is undeterred in this she's okay with the priority of Jesus going to the Jews first she understands that she gets it but she believes that Jesus also came to bless the nations And she believes that the blessing of Jesus is not only sufficient, but it is abundant. It is overflowing. And so she jumps into the parable with Jesus, and she says, Lord, I'm okay with being a dog. I'm okay with that. If I could just get under the table and have a little bit of the crumbs, that's all I need. Because I believe that you are more than enough for me if I could just have a little bit of you. You see, this is exactly what Jesus intended for her. Because the word that Jesus used for dogs, that word actually signifies uh, little 
dogs or, or puppies. So it's possible that Jesus actually means a dog that would be kept in the home, kind of as part of the family, and the family would take care of it and provide for it. And so he's not calling her names. He's not pushing her away. In fact, he's inviting her to believe that he is the one who can provide for her. He is the one who can take care of her. And she gets it, which i got to say is a little shocking, okay? So far, uh, we've not been uh, hitting a, a great batting average on understanding Jesus' parables so far. You remember back in chapter 4, Jesus said the reason that he was telling these parables is lest they hear and understand and turn and be forgiven. So these people, like nobody's getting it. None, none of the people around them, not even the disciples are getting it. She is the first one in this book to hear Jesus' parables and understand and get it. Do you know what that means? That means that so far, a Gentile woman understands the mission of a Jewish Messiah better than anyone, even the Jews, even the disciples. I mean, that's got to be encouraging for these Gentile Christians that are reading this, right? That means that you and I can come to and approach God and ask for help. We don't have to hold back and don't stop. Be persistent. Keep asking. In fact, Jesus told us another parable to try to help us understand. No, I'm not kidding. Keep asking me. Do you remember we talked about the parable of the persistent widow? There was a widow who came to a judge, and she just kept asking for justice. She's banging on his door, and she just keeps, he's finally, in Luke chapter 18, the judge is like, fine, okay, I can't take it anymore. Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. This is Jesus' way of inviting us. Don't stop. Keep asking me. Keep knocking on the door. Don't stop. Your persistence demonstrates your faith that he is the only one who can help you and that you really believe he can help you. So do you pray like that? Do I approach God with this sense of like, I'm not giving up. I believe it. You have that kind of faith. In fact, uh, the great chapter on faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, tells us that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you believe that when you seek, you will find? That's what Jesus said. Do you believe that when you ask, it will be given? Do you believe that he has the answers? This is actually one of the pillars of our church here at Harvest. Unceasing prayer. Not every once in a while prayer. Not once a week prayer. Unceasing prayer. Why? Because we believe firmly in the power of prayer. Can I be honest with you just for a minute? Are you okay with that? This is kind of convicting to me because sometimes the lack of urgency and persistence in my own prayer life demonstrates that I don't really believe that firmly in this. Can we work on this together? Can we become a praying church 
that is going to believe that God is going to answer us? Uh, are you, do you have an unceasing persistence in prayer daily with a list on your knees, on the bus, in the car, beside your bed, it, at night, in the morning, get up and do it again the next day? Do you pursue God in prayer? You keep asking. You see, this woman had found the one that she was looking for. And so despite all of her credentials and despite any cultural barriers, even in the face of what might have seemed like an initial rejection, she threw down her pride in determination to ask the Lord for help. Do we, do we have that? Do you have that kind of humble faith where you would say, Lord, I know, I don't, I know what I deserve. And I know you don't treat me as my sins deserve. And I know I'm not deserving of this, but I need you. I need you to work in my life, and I believe that you can. Do you know that Jesus responds to that humble faith? Because look what he says, verse 29. He says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon Gone. As soon as Jesus heard her, he's like, wow, that's the kind of faith I've been looking for. And I love that he doesn't even have to set up an appointment for her to bring her daughter in. He's just kind of, you know, even from a distance, Jesus has the power to heal and cast out the enemy. Jesus responds. But it's important to see how Jesus responds to our humble faith. So I want to keep reading, okay? I want to keep going. Here we are in verse 31. He says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven... He sighed, and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Come on, get low. Be persistent. Here's a third action step for when you're asking God for help. Note this. Look up. Come on, look up. Verse, verse 30, 31 tells us that he actually is returning now to the region of the Decapolis. So I get to pull out my map one more time because I want to show you what's happening here, okay? He's been in the, this is where most of his ministry has been, right here in Capernaum, uh, Gennesaret, right here in the Galilee. He left and went up to Tyre. Now he's going through Sidon, and he's making his journey all the way back down to the Decapolis, this area below the Sea of Galilee on the other side. We've been here before. You know that? Remember this? Chapter 5. Jesus already came here. He came here in chapter 5 when he went on this little short-term missions trip. He went across the Sea of Galilee and, and he saw a man who was possessed by a demon. Remember that? And when he was there the last time, the people in the Decapolis, they didn't want him. They, 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 they tried to ask Jesus to leave. They wanted to get rid of him. 
Well, now here's another crowd, and they don't seem to be antagonistic, which means it's possible that the story of that man who had been demon-possessed has made an impact. Because you remember, that guy had asked Jesus. He's like, man, I want to come with you, Jesus. Let Let me come with him. And Jesus said, no, I want you to go home and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. Maybe that message has been sinking in. Now they're a little more receptive to what Jesus can offer. But Mark focuses on one man, which kind of has a ring of distinct memory. Maybe this kind of stood out to Peter. It's a man who is uh, deaf, who has a speech impediment, meaning he can't see and he can't talk. But notice what Jesus does, verse 33. It says, taking him aside from the crowd privately. Now some of you can uh, deeply appreciate this. He moves uh, away from the spotlight. Because Jesus is not trying to use this guy to, you know, put on a show or or to make a, a spectacle of him. Jesus is making it personal for this man. He's like, just forget everybody else for just a minute. You focus on me. And then it gets weird. All right? Look at what he does in verse 33. He put his finger into his ears, and then he's spitting, touching his tongue. So this is kind of awkward, maybe maybe funny. I don't know. Uh, so so um, I understand, and, and granted, some cultures have a different interpretation of personal space. Some people are okay being a whole lot closer uh, to each other than I would be comfortable with. I'm willing to admit that. But can we all uh, just admit that this is kind of a universal breach of personal space? This is what you did to your little brother when you were trying to pick on him. You'd, you'd lick your finger and stick it in his ear, right? So, so is Jesus just giving this guy a wet willy? Is that what's happening here? Or like, like why is he spitting and touching his t- this is disgusting what's going on here well obviously there's there's got to be more that he's trying to prove than that jesus is not a germaphobe in this and, and he's not doing some magical incantations with like elaborate hand gestures because he's doing magic tricks okay i want you to think about what he is communicating to this man this guy doesn't fit in He's been dealing it with his whole life. When people talk to him, he can't hear. He doesn't know what they're saying. He misses the jokes. And when he does open up his mouth and a noise comes out, people just look at him and stare. And so Jesus pulls him aside and gets him away from everybody else so that he can have a one-on-one connection with him. And then he touches his ears as if to say, I can fix that. And he touches his tongue, I can fix that too. It's it's like he's giving him his own special sign language that's just for the two of them. He's communicating in the only way that this man can understand. And it's intimately personal and, and meaningful. What he is demonstrating is, I love you. And I care about how this is hurting you. Do you know? Do you know that Jesus loves you? Do you know that he cares about what you are going through personally? That he knows when you've been rejected. He knows when you've been the butt of the joke. When 
you've taken the heat in someone's anger. When when you've been the victim of injustice, when when your work has been overlooked and underappreciated, when the unexpected bills are piling up and you have no idea how you're going to take care of this. He knows when you've been taken advantage of or when you or someone you love is suffering or hurting and living with pain, maybe even facing death. He sees the lonely nights and, and, and the friendless hours that you have spent in tears and He moves towards you in compassion. Because he cares and because he understands. You say, how does he understand? Well, well, look at what he does. Verse 34. Look look at what he does. Verse 34 says, he looked up to heaven and he sighed. Picture this, okay? He steps back and he looks up. And he sighs. That word means to groan. It means to grieve. It's because he was looking at his creation. This man whom he made in his image. Whom he loved. And he groans because of the suffering that this man has endured. And Jesus knows why. It's because of sin. This is what happens when you're living under the curse of sin. There's sin brings brokenness and suffering in the world. This is not the way he created it. When he created the world, it was good. It was perfect. And so he grieves at the sight of the destruction and the suffering that sin has left in its wake. He cares. He groans. In fact, this is the same word that Paul uses that we feel in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 23, Paul says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan, there's the word, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan with longing for the chaos of this world and the brokenness of our bodies to be restored to God's perfect order. And so in this moment, Jesus sighed because he knew the problem. And better than any of us, he has felt the weight of the curse of sin. But he also points to the answer. Did you know that? I want you to see it. Look look at verse 34. Look at it. Look at it. Come on. Verse 34. Where is he looking? You tell me. Where is he looking? Come on, church. He's looking up. The answer to your suffering comes from above. So get your eyes off of your circumstances and look up to Christ. He himself looks up to heaven. Sighs. Says Ephrathah. It's in Aramaic. Probably the way that Peter just remembered it. He says, be open and immediately the man is healed. And the people, the crowds, they're hearing that they see this. The guy comes out and he can see, he can talk, he's he's normal again. And so they go around, they start telling everybody. They're like, they can't help it. Why? Because the text says they were astonished, verse 37, beyond measure. And they say, he has done all things well. That means he makes all things well. Good. Just like he did at creation, he's going to do it again. Why? Because he came to die so that he could conquer sin and death. So that he is the one who can and who will restore all things. He will reverse the curse and set things right. That's a promise. It's coming. And so we wait eagerly for his return. 
We're looking forward to the day when Jesus is going to set all things right. And so if you are suffering, if you are in need, if you are in pain, if you have been asking Jesus to work in your life, get low. Get low in humility, but also in faith. Don't stop asking. Be persistent and look up. Your answer is coming. The answer's coming. But I know that like when you're hurting, just honestly, we want things to change now. And so a lot of times our thoughts and our prayers are just consumed with our circumstances. But he wants our hearts and minds to be filled with Christ. Come on, you know this. Like, Just because you pray and ask does not mean that your circumstances are immediately going to change. They may not improve. And if God says, not right now, not in, the, not in your timing, it may not get better, but trust me, he's proven it. You have a Savior who loves you and who cares for you and who will not leave you. And he has promised that he is coming back and he will set all things right. The answer is coming. Look up, church. Jesus responds when we ask in humble faith, and he's the one that can reverse the curse we're under. Father, I pray that you would convince us of this again. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you care about the suffering that we endure. Thank you that not only do you care, but you can do something about it. You have and you will. So Lord, I pray that this might impact our prayers this week. Lord, we want so badly to be a praying church, but we want to approach you in a way that gives you glory. I don't want to be the center of attention. You are God. I am not. I know what I deserve. I know what I don't deserve. But we come asking for your grace and your mercy again. And if anybody's feeling the weight of that this morning, I pray that you would bring them comfort. You are the God of all comfort. Would you prove to them that you care personally about what they're going through right now? Would you sustain them? Show them that you love them, that you care for them. And remind them that you have the power. You have the power to work. Lord, we might have to wait longer than we'd want, but we wait eagerly with expectation and excitement for you to come again. Even so, come Lord Jesus, and we'll be careful to give you the praise that you deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray.